It's a longing for a better future. That's what it someday would mean to me. It means like potential. It's, to me, it's a very positive word, full of hope. But it could be a little melancholy longing, but I'm also just, melancholy longing is my middle name. Back at it again. This is episode eight of Talking About Someday. This week we have Dent May, Car Park Records recording artist, fabulous songwriter. I connected with him at his apartment in LA a couple months ago. We talk about growing up in Mississippi, all kinds of juicy tales of DIY indie rock culture, and me cold DMing him on Twitter, ultimately leading to us writing a song together. A lot of ground covered in this one. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Here we go. Who were you? Who am I talking to? My name is Dent May. I'm a songwriter and performer and singer. Living here in Los Angeles for a few years, but I'm originally from Jackson, Mississippi. Lived in Oxford, Mississippi for a long time. So yeah, I'm a Southerner. I have four albums that I've released under my name, Dent May, um, the most recent of which came out in August of last year, 2017. It's called Across the Multiverse. Yeah, I don't know what else there is to know about me. I'm com- I'm on tour, so I'm coming your way soon. <laughs> more tours coming in the pipeline. More tours. Yeah, more tours. Always touring. Yep. Make an album, tour the album. Exactly. Take a break yeah when i first moved to la i didn't tour for a couple of years and then i made the album and now i'm back at it so it's been good right okay so you were born in mississippi yes and you're pretty much there for your whole yeah i um yeah i went to nyu film school for three semesters <laughs> so i was in uh new york for like a little bit like 10 years ago that was like 2003 2004 like so right when you were 18 yeah or, yeah so what did you think of when you got to new york from mississippi um, I mean, I didn't think too hard about it. People are always like, are you super culture shocked? And I was like, no, because I like have the internet and TV and kind of knew what to expect and had traveled there a few times in my life already. I think the, the bigger thing, the reason I left was more that I decided I didn't want to go to film school. And I did just decide I didn't want to pay like $50,000 a year on college. Yeah, I'm still interested in film stuff and I watch movies and maybe we'll, I want to like write a musical film one day but did not ever look back and feel like moving back to Mississippi to focus on music was a very good decision. Yeah. yeah. People, I guess, from bigger cities maybe look at people from other smaller rural places as being somehow removed from what else is going on. But then like the way the world works now, it's sort of your exposure to the breadth of the universe can be as much as you want to right. explore. It's sort of like anything is possible with the gateway of course. I mean, I people always say, why don't you have a Southern accent? And other people think I do have one. But, you know, it's because like I just had access to various types of media and I very much didn't want to be Southern when I was like a, a teenager. You know, I didn't identify with uh, certain aspects of Southern culture, say hunting or, you know, conservative politics or anything like that. So I think I maybe subconsciously watching TV and stuff didn't like didn't want to really talk like that but yeah and before wikipedia there was allmusic.com i mean i was truly um and i had napster and kazaa and soulseek and um i was really 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 just spent all my all my hours on really on allmusic.com looking up artists going to related artists tab 
and then like re- opening them all in new tabs in the browser and then reading about all them, looking at their like recommended album, then like downloading it and listening and reading. So that was kind of my musical. That's your music school. Yeah. Just, yeah, self-taught in the encyclopedia yeah. of the world of music. I also did um, go to a performing arts elementary school where I did a lot of musical theater. I was in school and church choirs growing up. I was in this like weird choir you had to audition for called the Mississippi Children's Choir. Um, but then like I kind of stopped doing all that in like seventh grade and I started my first bands, which was like literally covering Creed. Like we covered Creed, <laughs> 311, Our Lady Peace, um, all in my opinion, all good bands. I will, you know, I ride for my seventh grade taste. I was really into like Blink-182, pop punk, got into the Newfound Glory and Less Than Jake, MXPX. I don't know if you know any of these bands, but... Um, Less but, Than Jake sounds familiar. But that kind of led me into getting into like Elvis Costello and the Cars, which led me get into like Pixies and Pavement, which led me to getting into New Order and then like David Bowie and Brian Eno and then like Krautrock and like psychedelic pop from the 60s. And I just see the tabs funk, opening funk music, up on the browser. R&B and soul <laughs> and funk music and rap. I, did, I definitely grew up on rap as something I liked when I was a kid and a teenager, we were in, you know, Southern rap, New Orleans rap and Atlanta rap and Memphis rap was huge in Mississippi, like three, six mafia. I saw three, six mafia live when I was in ninth grade and I've seen three, six mafia live like 10 times, you know, and I loved cash money. I love outcast. Yeah. I definitely feel like I was exposed to a lot of culture in Mississippi. I worked at independent bookstores in high school and college and you know, I mean, it has its own beautiful culture. That's the yeah. other thing that uppity Northeasterners like myself like mm-hmm. to do about the South, or maybe this, the high school version of me would like to do that before I went and visited the South for the first time yeah. and actually felt like I could see the things that we didn't even have access to mm-hmm. and some people could like look down on in the way that is just still like the nature of the U.S. That's a much broader conversation that we probably right. can't get into in terms of the divisions in the country, but... I found a real soft spot for like for Louisville, Kentucky. That's where I want to move to. And I mean like Mississippi, that's obviously different than Kentucky, but I like Louisville a lot. I actually like Lexington a lot. I have a lot of friends in Lexington. That's the capital of Kentucky, right? Yeah. And it's there's a college there, University of Kentucky. I don't know. For some reason, like a lot of my friends, Robert Beatty, who did my album art lives there. But yeah, back to Mississippi. It's like you could argue that like rock and roll and R&B and soul and country and all of it was invented there. I mean, that also brings up issues of inequality and why that was blues. Why did the blues happen? There's a lot of dark history and civil rights history that is important to know about. There's also a very rich literary history in Mississippi. William Faulkner, Eudora Welty was my neighbor and friends with my grandmother, Tennessee Williams. I mean, like a million awesome Mississippi writers. So that was that was cool. I feel like when when I went back to college at University of Mississippi and I was kind of more in the literary scene there, or at least like my friends were like MFA graduate students and I worked at the bookstore and local there's this guy named Barry Hanna, who's honestly like a cult classic iconic writer, um, who passed away like five or ten years ago and it's like huge inspiration to me. He was hanging around and we hung out with him and yeah, it was a it was a good vibe like when I was in Oxford in my like early twenties. And that's where I made my first albums. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, like, as a fan of your music, I've always loved the writing. Like, I've always loved how usually the subject matter feels, like, very straightforward, but there's always kind of a twist going on. If you really listen to what's happening, you know, it may be a sunny melody that's actually mm-hmm. telling, like, a darker story. I mean, the first thing that I 
was exposed to from you was East Over Wives. Right. And it's sort of like with that song, it's just, it's poppy and sunny, but then it's, I mean, it's talking about miserable wives mm-hmm. of like husbands who are never around essentially. Is that right. how I remember it? <laughs> yeah. And so like, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about like the tradition of writing and hanging out with people who are literary people, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to, I mean, I'm sure you were hanging out with musicians too, but Definitely. like that being part of sort of your story where right. you come from. Yeah, I definitely identify as a writer first. Like when you asked me to tell me about yourself, I said, I'm a songwriter. When a stranger says, what do you do? I'll, I'll either lie and say I'll say something because I'm like embarrassed to say I'm a musician or I'll say I'm a songwriter. And that's why it's cool to do collaborations like this one because it allows me to get out of my comfort zone of just like banging on my piano and making something from scratch and like kind of, yeah, experiment like that. And yeah, like I definitely think of my songs as like ideas, you know, like, or in like and definitely inspired by short stories. I like a lot of short stories and prose poetry and I put a lot of thought into the titles and concepts behind my songs. It kind of always starts there and then like kind of fleshing out the verses with like details. You know what I mean? So you started recording your first albums mm-hmm. in Oxford. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, my Dent May albums, yeah. Right, the Dent May There was albums. a lot of, like, junior high and, and high right. school stuff. Right, Which is not really that notable, but, yeah. But then, you know, I was in a pop punk band, and then I was in a high school band that was kind of power pop, you know, very Cars and Elvis Costello influence. But, yeah, and in, in Mississippi, well, I kind of simultaneously, as I was recording my first albums, I started getting into DIY house show culture and... Um, there were places I either visited, uh, and my very first tours I did or heard about like this place called Spazitorium in North Carolina and this place called the secret squirrel in Athens, Georgia, and, like Wham city in Baltimore, where, like Dan Deacon's crew was doing cool stuff in the smell in LA I'd heard about. And I went to the market hotel, the old school market hotel in New York and stuff like that. And so I started booking house shows and this house I lived in outside of Oxford in a town called Taylor. And we did shows in our garage. And before that, I lived in a double wide trailer where it's actually where I recorded my first album. But then we moved to this bigger house with a garage. And then we moved to an even bigger house that was known as the Cat's Purring Dude Ranch. And we had like dozens of shows there over the years. I mean, Grimes and Unknown Mortal Orchestra, Real Estate. So many like awesome bands came through because there was a void to fill where there wasn't a lot of that kind of stuff coming through. And I had just begun to start touring and getting my music out there on the internet people would say hey um what's up with playing mississippi and i was like i don't know well there there is a really great venue in oxford called proud larry's but for bands starting out it's kind of hard to get into a, a a real venue when there's things like guarantees and you know there's an overhead for the venue you know that maybe they're more skeptical about like an unknown band but we were like okay you're like a random band that sounds cool on myspace come play in our garage so that was also a big influence on just like my worldview i guess as an artist like 10 years ago um starting to record music and go on tours and stuff like that and yeah there was a lot of other bands from oxford that were part of that community um there's one called bass drum of death this guy john barrett who lives in new york now who's tours all over the world and um there was a lot of cool bands there was one called flight that is like really great and unheralded band from mississippi from back in the day so yeah there's a lot going on there i mean as you know college towns it's college town life it's cool to hear you talk about just DIY culture as it relates to music because that's for DJing, that's my background too. Because there's sort of something that happened in the mid 2000s with the kind of scene that developed around the kind of music I was making and DJing that was the same exact thing, um, but almost took cues from the DIY culture of indie rock right. more than from 
other aspects of DJ culture. And so it was all, you know, people booking their friends at warehouse shows and then trading gigs so that, you know, you bring down your friend from Montreal and they'll get you a gig. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just amazing to see. um, I mean, you mentioned a bunch of acts that are now very well known Mm -hmm. and it's sort of the same thing, like how these really vibrant communities end up kind of lifting everybody up. And, totally. uh, and a lot of those people end up becoming like the important players in mm-hmm. like music. Right. I feel like I'm kind of more out of touch with the way that, that happens right now. Mm-hmm. Um, just because like I'm a dad mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and I don't, and I don't go on the road as much as I used to, or like when I am, I have enough clout to like play at a, re- a quote real venue, right. not like a grimy spot that actually like are some of my fondest memories of playing shows. Right. Yeah, I still do a little of that. And there's definitely a thriving scene like that in, in Los Angeles. And I know there is in New York, too. But, you know, in places like New in New York, I guess, you know, clubs can stay open until what, at least four or something. Where like in L.A., they have to be done at like two, like last calls at like one thirty and like dance music culture. No one's going to like go to bed at two at one thirty. You know what I mean? So the like warehouse dance DJ scene here is like amazing. And I go to a lot of stuff like that. And yeah, there's that's that kind of stuff is never going to stop. Yeah, that's where the vibrancy is. Right. So like I said, I'm a fan. Been a fan. Thank you. <laughs> There's a lot of people that I've tried to turn your music on to, and I remember saying, like, it's like the Beach Boys with a drum machine. Right. That That's, like, the easiest one-liner. It obviously, you know, kind of puts it in a much smaller box than it is. But, like, the other thing is that with the album, like, Do Things, and even with the, the more recent albums, like, I was struck by how much it reminded me of Blue-Eyed Soul. Yeah. I don't know what it was about it that, right. that kind of made it feel like that to me because it also reads as like quote indie rock, mm-hmm. but it was very like soulful right. to, to me. I think that's kind of where the kernel of the idea of wanting to try to work with you came from. I was like, this actually would be, this could be really cool. Right. And I remember, I think that I like just like hit you up on Twitter. I can't remember how I like reached out to you. I think it was, it might yeah. have been Twitter actually now that I think about it. Yeah. We had a FaceTime conversation. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> Definitely. I had this demo that was called Backlit Waterfall Painting. Right. That I had made, and I was just like, this is the one that I feel like most matches your right. aesthetic. Or you just like me a couple others as well. But that one spoke to me the most immediately first, too. I don't ever just send one. Right. But like, that was the one I was like, I hope this is the one that he likes. Right. <laughs> yeah, about a year ago, I was out in L.A. We arranged to meet up to basically do, like, the bulk of the songwriting for what became How Many Kisses. I remember coming into this room, and you sat down at the piano. Mm-hmm. You were like, hey, I have this idea for the chorus of the song. And you just start playing the chords of the song and right. singing the chorus. How many kisses will it take to satisfy you? I adore the way you taste. I got what you came for. I can give you more all night. How many kisses will it take to satisfy you? The chords were a little different. I remember we had to go back in and kind of rearrange just bare, just a little bit. Right. But it was cool because like that's something that 
I mean, aside from just walking into a bedroom and seeing an upright piano mm-hmm. and being like, oh, okay, like this is how this guy rolls. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's cool when someone takes your song that at that point is just like this weird idea in a computer mm-hmm. and brings it out into like the world of actual songwriting and music. And you, you, you saying that you're a songwriter first, like that's the, the biggest proof that that's what you, what you are. Cause it's just immediately just delving into the elemental core of the song rather right. than the production or right. other aspects of it, you know, that become part of the, the recording, you know, but they're like not part of the song. Right. In your own music, do you think about that? Like there's the version that anybody could play on an acoustic guitar versus the version that's like on the record. Oh, yeah. That's like that's central to what I do. I feel like I very much want to write songs that could be, you know, performed in any context by anyone and it would still hold up and be cool and be good. And I also really love production and stuff like that too so it's about meeting kind of halfway but like the number one thing for like my records that I make is like I want this to be a song that translates in any context you know what I mean and I, I really want to contribute to the the greater songbook of stuff and the, you know just kind of crossing my fingers that like something might resonate with culture on some tiny level or something like that but this instance of collaborating with you I can't really write to a track like I mean maybe I can but and I definitely like, I think I came up with some of the seeds of the chorus of how many kisses to the track, but like to actually flesh it out, I got to like pick up a guitar or piano and just like sing it. And I don't, I don't think I even knew that I had the timing of the chords wrong. Basically, I just, once I went to piano, I had the timing of the chords a little wrong. But that actually ended up being a key part of the process because like, I don't think I had realized that the <laughs> that the song was just like a like a three bar phrase yeah it wasn't like which is uh, like pretty it's it it's didn't cool. sound awkward for the song right but it, but it that is not the way that most songs are right and so you kind of pulling it out of the box made us sort of address it as a song mm-hmm. for a little while and so we were thinking about it just in terms of those aspects of like how is this going to move like where are the chords falling mm-hmm. where where is the emphasis it doesn't have to be the way that it is right now. You know, the way that it is in the computer is just a, it's a sketch. And so then, like, after after you were playing the piano, we, we went in. I remember changing some of the chords. And then we extended the chorus to go into, like, a regular kind of four-bar phrase. Exactly. And that created that cool contrast between the verse and the chorus mm-hmm. for a song that is kind of, it's basically just a loop with some other stuff added on top of it, that actually gives it some kind of motion that you wouldn't... I think it's like one of those subconscious things that most people won't even realize that it's happening. Right. When the chorus hits and it kind of falls into a more regimented structure. Yeah. It sort of like hopefully connects in a way that... I didn't even really think about it, you know, but it is true. I do think it may... I think it's tough to do a chorus that has weird timing. You know what I mean? And a verse with a weird timing is awesome. Uh, but like, you know, when the chorus hits, you got to be able to sing along, you got to be able to nod your head, you got to be able to clap your hands, you know what I mean? So if the timing, and I mean, you know, there's probably a million exceptions to songs that have weird timing that are like super awesome, you know what I mean? Like Hey Ya by Outkast is not super off, but it's a little like off sounding or something like that. There was another thing though that we messed with out here, the sort of like Seinfeld bass. Oh, right. I remember like something was weird mm-hmm. and we worked on trying to finesse That's true. that. Every collaboration of that I do is totally different and that's mm-hmm. part of the 
purpose of like having these conversations is to have the whole scope and the breadth. But with this one, I keep being reminded of the aspects of you kind of like drilling in on something like that seemed really small right. that was bothering you about yeah. it. And then we would like change that tiny thing and it sort of was like, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Like that totally needs to be that way. Right. And so you were kind of more hands-on with some of the nuts and bolts of the components with right. this one than some people were with the other ones. And so right. that's kind of how this one stands out to me is being more like something that, you know, you kind of got in there and were like, well, what if this part, you know, right. what if this, this didn't happen or instead of it being this many notes, it was just yeah. these two notes and this part in the bass right. line or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I feel like every element in a song for the most part needs to be memorable and catchy and it needs to have some sort of resolve that you can't really explain or put your hands on. But like to me, certain things feel right. And certain things don't. And I'm not saying that it felt wrong, but I was like, oh, this would feel more natural and just like smoother if it just right. was a little simpler or something like that. It's just this one little like I think it was just like the end of the baseline before it like loops or, you know what I mean, goes back to the one or something like that. Right. So then I remember like I went home. We hadn't really talked about the verses at all, but I was like, that seems pretty straightforward. And you I think you did like a legit pass on all of the vocals. Yeah. And sent it back to me. And I remember coming back to you being like, this is great. But think about it being more like a 112 song. Exactly. And simpler. Right. Fewer, not necessarily fewer notes, but having more space. Right. And I remember the the next version, which it was just like sexier, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. Put your cell phone on silent. Scented candles have been lighted. I do think my biggest weakness as an artist is like overstuffing. And I, I don't know if it's a weakness or a blessing or a curse because that's also like fun and maybe makes my my music different than your average like I don't know minimal indie pop song or something but yeah I think that that was a good instinct on your part to like give it more space and stuff like that it definitely felt like a 90s R&B kind of thing little prince and yeah I just wanted to do like kind of sexy lyrics I mean but like kind of in a it's not cheeky or anything but it's like scented candles have been lighted or something like that it's like sexy and fun it comes across as very fun and yeah. like I like to keep it fun so it definitely appealed to me on that level. But I was super glad that it had that aspect of your writing that like is very sincere, but also like because of the contrast that's presented with the sort of like schmaltzy saxophone and the other stuff going on, mm -hmm. it has an unexpected juxtaposition between your voice and and the other stuff in the track. And I think especially after I added the 808s, mm -hmm. like I think that those weren't there in the original. That's right. They weren't there in the original demo. And it was much like just like more like a breakbeat and a and kind of like the sax as the main thing. Right. And then I kind of like put in tuned 808s like a, mm -hmm. like a contemporary mm -hmm. rap song. Right. I think for me, I remember that being one of the final pieces that was made it like into what it should be. Mm -hmm. Oh, and like the little like trap hi-hats. Mm-hmm. The like stuttery hi-hats and the 808s, I kind of just like put that on top of everything. Right. Which gave it kind of more of like a what the fuck. Yeah. That it needed. It right. needed some it needed something that was like, okay, now this is like now this sounds like a, a song made in this decade, but with like a, a loungy kind of white vocal mm -hmm. <laughs> on it. Yeah. It makes it unique, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's the most that's like the most exciting thing about making music to me especially in the production level, is just kind of mashing up a bunch of different influences from all over different decades and different eras and different just like aspects of what I like about music, you know? 
I think it's a very 21st century approach to where like you literally have like the largest sonic toolkit of all time that you could never even have imagined like 20 years ago and it's all at your disposal and you can never decide which preset am I going to put use for this synth lead or something like that but it's just like really fun and exciting to like yeah and like you mentioned that it's like my music's like Beach Boys with a drum beat but yeah it is very much influenced by 60s 50s 60s vocal melodies classic songwriting but also 80s funk, soft pop, yacht rock kind of stuff, 90s rap and R&B, and like a little bit of contemporary music, you know? And I think that's the fun way to approach it rather than a lot of like indie artists might say, let's do like, like pick an obscure band and just try to sound like that. People always say, what do you sound like? And I'm like, that's the worst question you can ask a musician, obviously. But I think the harder it is to answer that question, the better. Yeah, I'm right with you. That can be a liability in your actual career mm -hmm. because people want to be able to describe you as true. Beach Boys with a drum machine. Right. And like, if you don't give them that, then mm -hmm. they're going to be like, what do you, what is this? Like, mm -hmm. this isn't Dent May music. Right. Or for me, it's like, why do all of your songs sound totally different from each other? Mm -hmm. What is it that you do? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's the point of like Sammy Bananas is mm -hmm. that, I mean, it's like literally all over the place with as long as there's a foundation of soul mm -hmm. going on, you know, it can be like trap song with blue eyed soul. It can right. be like a house song with soul. It can be, you know, like a weird mid eighties disco mm -hmm. song with soul it can be anything like any of those things. Um, you know, it's sort of like walk that line of doing exactly what you want to do. And trying to figure out what people want, I guess. Well, it's very important to have like a personality at the center of all of it and a perspective and like, you know, like a, a purpose and, and not just to be like, oh, I'm trying everything because that I don't know. I, I think it's just like and yeah, you as you go on, you kind of zone in on what is your voice as an artist, for lack of a better word. You know what I mean? You can, I think you can have it both ways, but you're definitely right that people want to be able to describe your music in very simple terms and when they can't, it might be a problem for journalists or for some people. But I think in the long run, it's good to just do your own thing and, f and forget about all that and develop your own thing. So the title of the album is Someday. Right. I've just been asking everybody what that word means to them. Do you have any like first reaction of what that word means to you? For me, it's like a longing for the future. A it's a longing for a better future. That's what it Someday would mean to me. It's like, someday I'm going to be happy. <laughs> I'm not saying that's what your album title means. But like, yeah. someday I'm going to meet someone I fall in love with. Someday I'm going to write the best song of my life, you know, and someday I'm going to visit Portugal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. whatever. Um, it means like potential. It's, to me, it's a very positive word, full of hope. But it could be a little melancholy longing, but I'm also just, melancholy longing is my middle name, you know, so I kind of probably read that into every word, but. That was great. I haven't been doing any sign-offs, like, except for saying thank you. This is Dent May, and you're listening <laughs> to Sammy Bananas Radio. <laughs> Sammy Bananas Channel on Spotify. <laughs> thank you for doing this. Thank you for being part of this larger project. Yeah, I'm really stoked for people to hear the music. Yeah, thanks for asking me. I mean, it really coincided perfectly with a point in my creative life where I'm craving to do collaborations and have been super open to that and you just hit me at the right moment and i've been doing more of stuff like that lately and uh so thanks for kind of helping me open up that world word up sweet and here is how many kisses featuring dent may put your cell phone on silent 